Welcome back to Entertainment Weekly's Best of Shows, a podcast where we look at the best of television and the rest of television. I'm Darren Franich, a TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, joined as always by my brilliant colleague, Kristen Baldwin, also a TV critic, who later today will be speaking to the great Pamela Adlon. That interview is going to happen at the end of this episode. Kristen, I'm excited for this. I mean, I love her so much. Not only do we both love Better Things, her show on FX, she's also permanently in my heart as the voice of Bobby Hill on King of the Hill. I assumed all your questions were going to be about Bobby Hill. I mean, like, as 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 much as there is to discuss about better things, which, by the way, which, uh, by the way, Kristen, just a quick note for our listeners, uh, everyone do go and check out in this week's issue of EW and on EW.com. You and I, Kristen, have put together our list of our favorite shows of the year so far. Better Things is on there, naturally. <laughs> yes, it and is. Lo- and uh, many other shows are also on there. So a lot to talk about uh, with our list, which we might get into next week. This This week, though, Kristen, a lot of new shows to hit. Yes. We're we're talking about The Return of Pose, one of your favorite shows from last year. Yeah. We're talking about Black Mirror, a show that you have bravely (laughs) waded into. You have, this is, this is going to be the first big Kristen Baldwin Black Mirror experience that we're discussing here. Yes. It's exciting. (laughs) But let's start off by talking about a show that just returned last night, Big Little Lies on HBO, a fantastic miniseries from 2017 that is now a miniseries no longer. It is in a different category in the Emmys. Or was it always in a different category at the Emmys? You can't trust those categories you can't. in the Emmys. The categories are a lie. The categories are a lie, and that's okay. That's all part of the fun of uh, the awards show circuit, which I assume Big Little Lies Season 2 will once again be on. Uh, Kristen, Big Little Lies, for those who didn't watch the miniseries and for those who didn't watch What's Wrong With You, it is set in the very fancy, sunny environs of Monterey, California, uh, which looks on screen a little bit more like Malibu, but that's okay. That's okay. That's part of the fun. That's part of the escapism. Uh, Season two picks up with the Monterey Five, the five women who all happen to be moms of second graders at the fancy local school. Uh, Season one ended, spoiler alert, which of course we'll just talk about because it happened two years ago, with them covering up the murder of one of the worst people on the face of the earth, Perry, played by Alexander Skarsgård. In season two, they are still kind of recovering in some ways from that action. Some of them are suffering from feelings of guilt. Some of them are suffering from feelings of paranoia. And some of them, Kristen, are getting their picture taken for a woman in power (laughs) photo shoot for the most popular women's magazine in America. Um, There's so much going on here, Kristen. The level of acting talent on this show is really fantastic between Meryl Streep, Laura Dern, Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon. Um, How did you feel, though, about the season two premiere? Because you... I, I think more so than me, you've been a little skeptical about the continuation process of Big Little Lies. Yes, uh, a couple things. Uh, I would like to say that while it maybe was a murder, it was definitely a self-defense situation, which, uh, you know, as you know, uh, Perry played by one of the scars guards, Alexander, right? He is mm-hmm. uh, the worst. And uh, Bonnie was just trying to save her friend. That said, I was a little like, oh, come on. Do we really have to do a second season? Does everything need a second season? I remember when it was announced, uh, critic Alan Sepinwall, good friend and just general brilliant guy, tweeted, remember when stories were allowed to just end? <laughs> and I always think of that every time a season two is announced because they aren't allowed to end. That's said uh, I've seen the first three episodes as have you we will only talk about the first one here generally speaking it's such a fun show these are incredibly talented women Laura Dern is like a 
goddess. I want to put her above Meryl Streep in this show in terms of like, she is living her best life as Renata. <laughs> that photo shoot scene is freaking incredible. She's dancing to Diana Ross. It's amazing. It's amazing. Every scene she has <laughs> is just truly amped up to 11 and yet somehow so compelling. I do think that there's some other things happening on the show that don't quite feel fully realized at the moment, which I'm sure mm -hmm. we'll talk about. I think you put it in your review, which is online now at EW.com. You put it so well where you sort of said like the Nicole Kidman stuff where uh, Celeste is struggling with, you know, the death of her very abusive and awful husband. Uh, she's struggling with occasions of guilt and feeling like she's to blame and then, uh, you know, just dealing with the aftermath. And on the other hand, you've got Renata, uh, Laura Dern, just being a freaking crazy person, but like living, living out loud. And then in the middle, it's a little, it's a little wishy-washy. Yeah, there's a lot of different tones that are being juggled here. And I guess to a certain extent, Kristen, that was true of what we retroactively have to call season one. I mean, like um, season one already had this incredible depth of feeling and domestic horror in the Celeste plot line. Um, but then in season one, there would also be that moment where uh, Renata was freaking out over Amabella's birthday party. And like, <laughs> I think I think that was the scene in season one where she let out the like primal roar and mm -hmm. so you know, I, I'm aware that like those kind of different palettes have always been a part of Big Little Lies right. but here as you were kind of saying it does just feel as if you know you have what's going on with Celeste and I think that Nicole Kidman is still giving a really remarkable performance a lot of what we're seeing so far in season two is very much her kind of living out the residual trauma of yeah. her constant abuse and you know it, it's really tricky and, and I think really admirably complex she's carrying around you know these different emotions some of them like her her feelings of guilt you know you want to kind of say like no 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 like you don't have to feel that way and like you know this isn't your fault and yet it's just wonderful to see Kidman play that out um then as you said you have Renata and the stuff that people saw in season one with Laura Dern doesn't even come close to what's coming I mean like uh there's there's a lot of material <laughs> going on between her and her husband that I'm very excited to talk about uh once everybody else has seen it but in between as you said I, I find that my biggest issues with the season so far kind of apply to um, the characters like uh, the Shailene Woodley character yeah. who uh, were in season in the first episode you're already kind of getting the slight sort of romantic subplot that she has with a character who I am not super invested in. I think the my biggest struggle this season so far Kristen is that the uh, Zoe Kravitz character who in, in a lot of ways was kind of the least explored person in the main ensemble mm -hmm. in season one, mm -hmm. it feels like this season is trying to kind of make up for that in some ways and, and that, you know, we are kind of seeing her more than anyone else suffering from the emotional consequences of, of her actions. As you said, her, her, her entirely in defense justified killing of this guy last year. And I think it's just hard because, you know, in the first episode, she is kind of in this fugue state and it feels a little bit interior in mm -hmm. a way that the show is not really exploring as opposed to you know what Celeste is going through is also very interior but you see that in a million different ways right and, you know the dramatization of that especially contrasted with the Meryl Streep character so I I, I, I kind of feel what you're saying I guess um, what they've done with, with Big Little Lies it, it makes me feel as if for a lot of TV shows now the better um, kind of connection point would be considering the second album of like 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 a band has mm -hmm. gotten back together yeah 
and everyone in the band is kind of doing their own thing right and and, and you know you you feel that some of them are kind of fitting into the larger process of the show more so than others I do think that like the Meryl Streep character she plays Mary Louise who's Perry's mom and of course she's in mourning and she's very sad about her son being dead and she's also sort of very willfully determined to believe that he was a great person a great dad and better than basically anyone else's son ever and she doesn't understand what happened you know it seems very hard for her to understand like he slipped and fell that seems crazy what do, what do you mean and so she's there definitely to move the story along of are they going to get caught and even if they do get caught it's like well yeah he was beating the shit out of Nicole Kidman so maybe it's okay <laughs> that they pushed him down the stairs that said we you know again there are a lot of little lies happening so we have to <laughs> we have to invest in those but her character is like I think Mary Louise is maybe supposed to be on the spectrum. Like she is very, she's so blunt to the point where she just is constantly kind of like outright rude. And I think that there's this scene in the premiere, which I think they just wrote to have Meryl Streep and Reese Witherspoon in the same scene where she just essentially meets Madeline and then just starts insulting her. Just like (laughs) just a stream of consciousness. Like I find little people to be untrustworthy, you know, and it's, it's delicious because it's Meryl Streep. She's so good. She's got the weird teeth. She's got the wig. Um, But she's like this awful person um and maybe that's supposed to offer us some insight into why perry is the way he is not that you can blame the mom they clearly they've got meryl streep like they got a lot of big names everyone's acting their butts off their emmy reels you know left right and center i'm just not 100 percent sure it's like gelling yeah, the, the, that scene that you mentioned, Kristen, the scene where she is just sort of insulting Reese Witherspoon for the sake of insulting her. <laughs> did, did did you kind of feel like that to me felt a lot more like vintage David E. Kelly, um, who, of course, yes. you, know, he, he, you know, he he was also the writer of season one. But I think, you know, partially because season one was drawing from the original novel, I think partially because uh, director Jean-Marc Vallée really found a different sort of fluid storytelling style with season one. Um this now feels like we are kind of in the famously sort of eccentric and a little quote marky David E. Kelly land, where now it is just sort of about these larger than life characters who are engaging in this way that is what what we would have called quirky back in the sort of yeah. Ally McBeal I, or or the practice days. Absolutely, right? like uh, Mary Louise almost has sort of a uh, Jane Krakowski played a character named Elaine uh, yes. on on uh, on Ally McBeal, and she was she was very blunt and. She, you know, she was much more of a sort of sex pot. She was glamorous, but she was very blunt and would just kind of say rude things. Um, and it was really funny. And so I did get a little bit of that vibe. You're, you're right. Bringing, you know, it did feel a little bit of like she's, you know, snappish. You know, exactly. she would always say exactly. snappish. But I do exactly. think that uh, Mary Louise is just like she's not a she's a caricature. Sure, not necessarily of anything we've seen before, but she's not like she doesn't feel like a real person. It doesn't yeah. matter because Meryl Streep's playing her. Exactly. And, and so, you know, when when Meryl Streep says, and I quote, we should scream and beat our breasts and tear our hair. Yeah, there is kind of an incredible amount of energy and vibrancy to that performance. Yes. Um, I, I'm very excited to see how people react to the next couple of episodes, because I, I do sort of think that uh, with the Mary Louise character, at least there is kind of a deepening 
awareness of where she is coming from. Uh, I think that um, one thing that, as we were kind of talking about uh, watching the episodes of this show, I think you'd kind of made the point that there is this interesting dynamic going on between sort of Meryl Streep as the mother of this really monstrous guy and her interactions with these women who, I mean, you know, in in, in a couple of cases with the Shailene Woodley character and the Nicole Kidman character, these are women who really suffered from the violence of her yes. son. And I, I find that dynamic to be really compelling and complicated enough that I, I guess what I'm circling around here is this new season for all of its kind of flaws. I'm very glad that it has happened. I'm, yeah. I'm very glad yeah. that, you know, it, it feels like there is a an interesting necessity and even a, a greater complication to this story than where season one had kind of left off. And I, I agree. I mean, I did watch the three and even, you know, with the problems that I had with it, I was still like, it's still so much fun to watch. Yeah. You know, everything's beautiful. All the people are beautiful. All the acting <laughs> is great or the majority of the acting is great. And then and it, it's a fun, soapy story in a lot of ways. You know, David Kelly knows how to do that. By the end, I still wanted to see more. I guess the question, and this is such a stupid existential like TV critic question, but had this season never happened, would we really be missing out? Yeah, it's hard yeah. to say until we, I guess, see more episodes. But I'm not convinced that like this season was 100% necessary. That doesn't yeah. mean it's not enjoyable. Well, what nailed it for me is a speech that's coming up uh, in a couple of episodes, which, w without spoiling anything, it's basically Reese Witherspoon's character is talking a lot about happy endings yeah. and about this idea that there aren't that many happy endings. And I guess, like, you know, I, I, I do find it really interesting that season one had I, I mean I, I think you could call it a, a happy ending or at least it was certainly yeah. a very it was certainly a very triumphant ending yes. that, you know at the end of this season where at the very beginning of Big Little Lies you kind of would have said oh this is a story about these different women kind of being at each other's throats the vision of them on the beach together raising the next generation was an incredibly positive one especially in the context of 2017 which yes. was an incredibly dark year in, in so many ways for women and for all human beings and so I, I just I I'm fascinated by this season I'm kind of with you you know it's going to be something that we're putting a pin in and circling back to and talking about a lot um, over the next a few weeks but I am very intrigued to see uh, what everybody thought about it and, and who who had the best makeover from season one because I think you got young your, Sheldon young Sheldon's looking great <laughs> he's looking great like he's he I don't is, even he... know the name of that actor he's a sweet <laughs> little boy I saw him at the premiere by the way um, I just I need to tell you Darren that I waited in line at the buffet at the Big Little Lie season two premiere behind <laughs> Alexander Skarsgård. He is very tall and he got <laughs> and he's very handsome and he ate salmon. Oh, really? Good mm -hmm. for him. Yeah. I love salmon. I know, me too. It's very healthy. Oh, anyway. I'm so glad to hear that I've... I, finally, I can say that I have one thing in common <laughs> with Alexander Skarsgård. <laughs> but I saw the little boy who plays... Uh, uh, Reese with or not Reese with uh, Shailene Woodley's kid again. I don't yeah. know any of these characters' name because it's like, oh, it's Nicole Kidman. Oh, it's Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> oh, it's Shailene Woodley. But again, he's he he uh, has hair now. He has a delightful mop of hair. He looks very handsome. Who do you yeah. think had the best makeover? I, I have to say, I, I I do sort of think that Adam Scott came back for season two and was like, everybody, I'm gonna look a little fancier this year. I'm shaving my uh, yes. nerdy guy beard. Uh, it, it, it's just gonna be a slight sort of step up from where my character was at That's in, true. In, he does in, look in good. season one. But uh, Big Little Lies is airing on Sundays. It's going to be a seven episode second season. We'll definitely be talking about it more in the near future. Uh, Kristen, are there 
any other shows coming back for their second seasons that we might want to talk about right well, now? Why, yes, there are. Uh, FX's Peabody award-winning drama Pose returns for its second season on Tuesday, June 11th at 10. And if you haven't watched season one, which is set in the burgeoning ball culture of 1980s New York City, I'd really urge you to check it out. It was on my top 10 list for 2018, and it's streaming now on Netflix. So my favorite thing about Pose, which is exec produced by Uber producer Ryan Murphy, is that for all of its groundbreaking stats, it has the largest transgender cast and behind-the-scene crew for a scripted show ever. At its heart, Pose is a traditional and uplifting family drama about a group of dreamers trying to make it in the big city. So I've watched the first four episodes of season two, and there's still a lot of humor and heartwarming drama but Pose also goes more in-depth on some very serious topics this season, too. The action jumps ahead to 1990 as Madonna's Vogue is putting a spotlight on the dance style that originated in the ball community. And Blanca, played by MJ Rodriguez, hopes that Madonna's hit signals that she and her trans community are going to be accepted in some bigger way by mainstream society. The reality is that the LGBTQ community is being decimated by the growing AIDS epidemic and nobody's really doing anything to stop it. So Blanca and Pray Tell, played by Billy Porter, get involved with the activist group Act Up, and they help stage a die-in at St. Patrick's Cathedral in the season premiere. And at times the writing in these scenes can feel a little stilted or pedantic, but there's so much other fun and emotional silly stuff happening. Um, Angel, played by India Moore, enters a modeling contest, and diva extraordinaire Electra Abundance, played by diva extraordinaire Dominique Jackson, takes on a new job that is fierce to the extreme. There are some things that are not quite working yet. I'm really enjoying what I've seen so far of this season. How much did you watch, Darren? Uh, Kristen, I watched the first couple episodes of the new season, and I, I think you've really summed it up so well. This show is such a party. Yes. Um, and, and it's a specific kind of party where it is really ecstatic and very effusive, even when the subject matter that it is covering is, you know, incredibly moving, all the more so because it's drawn so much from real life. Um, right. In the first episode, there is a um, kind of ongoing thing going on where just so many people on the show just keep on going to these funerals yes. um, and there's a really a scene that I think sums up everything I enjoy about Pose when uh, Pray Tell played by Billy Porter is talking to uh, Dr. Kubrak I think her name is uh, uh, played by the great Sandra Bernhard um, and th they kind of wind up having this incredible trench warfare humor moment about just how many funerals they've been going to mm -hmm. you, know, you know they sort of joke that you know whoever is the first person to get to a thousand um, and I just I think that that uh, those are the moments when I think that the show really does come to life. Um, you know, season two, just from my limited awareness of, you know, this show's depiction of real life ball culture, it feels like it's moving to an even more kind of fantastical realm. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's in the first episode when Electra uh, has a performance <laughs> where she, she reenacts the life of Marie Antoinette, complete with a guillotine. Yes. That appears. Really? 
Billy Porter's reaction where he's like, you all built a guillotine for this mess. Like, it's amazing. And, and I, 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 I really like that. I mean, you know, this is, in a lot of ways, one of the Ryan Murphyist Ryan Murphy shows. Yes. And, and, and that's, that's something that I enjoy about it. That's something that makes me worry a little bit, only because Ryan Murphy does have this history of TV shows that, you know, as they get deeper and deeper in, in seasons two and three and further along, they can kind of go off the rails. And right. with this show especially, you know, the rails are already kind of off in, in a way that can be very exciting. But but also, I mean, I, I, I'd be intrigued to know, I mean, you're someone who loved season one so much and had it on on, on your best list. Um, like, uh, do you kind of feel like, compared to past Ryan Murphy series, is this season two something where you're like, okay, it seems like it is finding its footing? Or, or are there moments where you feel like it is kind of getting to that more Sue Sylvester in season three <laughs> kind of a place? Actually, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I love some Ryan Murphy shows. I really don't like others. I feel that this one, even though there are some truly like Ryan Murphy fantastical touches, I actually think it's his most traditional show ever because it really it's aspirational in a way that his other shows aren't. I mean, Glee was in some ways aspirational, but it was just so over the top from the get-go. This is more like the trans community and the LGBTQ community in 1980s New York did not live easy lives. And none of these characters leave, live easy lives, but it's not, this is not a gritty, realistic drama. There's so much love. You know, they have family dinner. There's a lot of just really heartwarming elements to it that feel aspirational uh, and make it more like this is a family drama at its heart. And that's, you know, he hasn't really done that. Ryan Murphy hasn't really done that. So I do feel like while they are tackling more serious issues, the show's mere existence <laughs> tackles a serious issue but yeah. while they are getting more into you know the importance of the queer community sort of speaking up and fighting back against uh, the government's uh, ignoring the AIDS crisis, I want to make sure that they find ways to do it organically. Like, I don't want to be like, oh, this show about, you know, the gay community in the 80s shouldn't talk about AIDS. That's not it at all. Like, they should deal with it. It's just that right now, it seems like sometimes the show struggles to work it in uh, organically, which we know that it can do. And I yeah. think I think it will be able to do that. Um as you know, based on the four episodes, and there's just so much, you know, really moving and really funny and really emotional stuff uh, tied up with it. That even if there are a couple moments that feel a little clunky, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I I, I kind of find that um, one thing that you're describing. I, I wonder if it's kind of entering the text of the show a little bit. I, I believe it's in the season premiere um, when Electra uh, kind of interrupts this this big speech that Praytel is giving by actually saying like like get off your soapbox yeah, and yeah. I, I, I find sometimes that um, you know her subplot especially and a lot of the the kind of action to do with house of uh, ferocity like like that stuff feels like it is um, you know the kind of lucky charms version of pose yeah not that it's not kind of equally grappling with a lot of really interesting things but like you know there's a scene in the season premiere where Electra I think literally overturns a table and and <laughs> I, I I find that like you know that kind of mixture of kind of going from this really sincere portrait of this kind of of an activist event that they stage at a church going from that to a literal you know reality TV worthy soap opera table flip yes there's there's 
there, there, there's something in that kind of mixture that I think is just so distinctive and, and, and so unique. And so to your point also, even in the kind of greater canon of, of Ryan Murphy, um, just it, it does feel so much more tied to these genuine emotions in a way. And every time that everyone in Blanca's house sits down at the dinner table, that does feel old school in the best way. Yes. right? Like that is the like, uh, like TV family, TV community. I love it. It's really and, and I think in a lot of ways, that's the hardest thing to create in a TV show yeah. is that feeling of, of, of family. And I, I appreciate that Ryan Murphy and the people who run this show wanted to create a show that wasn't just like, look at the misery that these people have to deal with all the time. You know, like, why shouldn't it be an aspirational and sweet show sometimes while also depicting the real challenges that are faced by this community and especially at that time? Electroabundance is such a ridiculous character in the best way possible. I just urge people <laughs> to keep watching because she gets a new career this season and it's insane and it pays <laughs> off in so many ways. As an actress, I would say that Dominique Jackson is very beautiful, but I think her her abilities as an actress may not be very vast, but she has such charisma and the character is ridiculous. So even if she does everything, sort of performs everything in the same very loud and arch heightened line reading, it, like it works with her character and you can't not watch her even when you're just like, oh, you know, <laughs> that maybe isn't quote unquote acting. It doesn't matter. She's she's so fascinating. I, I will say uh, anyone watching the, this this TV show with a, with a glass of wine and you know why not drink every time someone in the new season uh, has an incredible compliment for Madonna because <laughs> uh, the show does use the song Vogue quite a bit. Yes. I mean, it, it kind of becomes the anthem of this season, and uh, I, I I suspect that there may have been uh, certain dialogue written with an eye towards appealing to the powers that be mm -hmm. to get that song because there's a lot of talk about like the legendary and iconic Madonna. Yes. And, like, like, like at one point, someone says Madonna lives on the edge of what's next. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not sure anyone's ever actually said that, but I'm glad someone is saying it on this show. And you know what? Like, whatever it took, like, I appreciate that they, whatever it took, it is important to the show. And it makes sense that this, this would mean a lot to them. And it also ties into uh, Angel's storyline uh, as she's entering this, like, fresh face of 1990 modeling contest. Just my final thing that I need to point out, which I didn't realize Darren but Tim Stack our colleague figured it out you know who plays Eileen Ford the founder of Ford Models who Angel is you know sort of auditioning for no Trudy freaking Styler oh really yes no kidding. yes because I knew that she looked familiar but I couldn't figure out who it was but yeah it's uh, Sting's wife Sting's wife. Okay. I didn't recognize her, but I was, it sort of makes total sense. Uh, <laughs> and her, she does a nice job because it's like, it's a very, you know, it's a high culture, high New York culture versus a very sort of underground New York culture. And when those characters combine, it's a, you know, it's a really interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a lot of interesting juxtapositions in, in general on the show. Uh, Pose returns for its second season uh, this week, June 11th on FX. Check it out. Kristen, 
little show called Black Mirror yeah. uh, just returned with three new episodes last week. This is the science fiction anthology. Broadly speaking, Black Mirror is about how technology is killing us all slowly. Um, more specifically, this is the Charlie Brooker created, formerly British, now Netflixed to the max science fiction series. Every episode is sort of covering a different uh, characters or series of characters' reactions to one thing or another in the technosphere. What a weird way to explain this show. It's like the <laughs> modern day Twilight Zone, yeah. except better. You guys get it. Um, but Kristen, one interesting thing about this is I I've seen pretty much all the episodes of, of Black Mirror. It right. debuted way back in 2011 and has sort of recurred uh, somewhat more and more frequently now that it's kind of gotten to Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, but you just watched your first ever episode yes. of Black Mirror. Yes. What was it like? What were you expecting? And how did the episode in question uh, titled Rachel Jack and Ashley 2, a.k.a. the Miley Cyrus one. Uh, how did it uh, kind of live up to or, uh, or defeat your expectations for what a Black Mirror episode is? First of all, the reason I don't watch is because I'm already, you know, I spend so much time already like really tense and worried about all the terrible stuff that happens on our planet. I don't need a TV <laughs> show giving me more uh, sort of hypotheticals to stress out about. I just, I don't do it. I don't do it. I mean, generally speaking, when I go to watch something, uh, I, I like to know if it has a happy ending. Um, most of the time, I, as as far as I understand, Black Mirror does not. Although I know that some of them do. I know, I know, but I'm not going to watch San Junipero. So just leave it. Stop asking me to watch it because I'm not going to do it. So anyway, this one, like I was stressed out, Darren, to watch this because I, you know, I assumed that you know you had told me you're don't worry, it's not too bad, it's not you know. And James Hibbard, who watches too, he was like, it's it's really it's not too bad. But I was still worried that it was going to like shake me to my core and put me into some like uh you know deep existential dread you know just all that that's what I was worried about it had like a cute little robot with Miley Cyrus's voice and <laughs> it felt like one of those happier Twilight Zones you know yes. where there actually is kind of a happy ending I can't think of a real Twilight Zone example at the moment but I know that there are some of those episodes where it's like you don't actually want to kill yourself at the very end. So yeah, a little more whimsical. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I thought the little robot was super cute. Um, <laughs> I want one. And I mean, do you want to explain what the sort of premise of this episode yeah, is? So, so broadly, uh, you know, everything you're saying, Kristen, is interesting because this episode does in some ways feel like a departure only in the sense that, um, you know, it is, it is very much a kind of teen, uh, I, I was gonna say teen drama, but maybe like teen comedy might be more specific yeah. as the episode goes along. Um, it kind of begins being about a, a lonely teenage girl who has just moved to a new, to a new school is clearly like kind of not really getting along with everyone um but she's an incredible fan of a pop star named ashley o played by miley cyrus in what initially seems like kind of more stunt casting than it actually is yeah. um i think that like cyrus's performance uh, really does kind of stand apart from her larger iconography because it turns out very quickly that as much as the show is about um you know th this kind of quote-unquote average teenager who likes this pop star it's also about the pop star and ashley is having her own struggles with her manager um, we learn pretty quickly that she wants to kind of break out of the squeaky clean image that has been created for her. Then we get to the point where 
typically in an episode of Black Mirror, Kristen, there's like kind of one science fiction thing added right. into a pretty realistic world. Um, here, there are suddenly like 30 where uh, kids are able to buy little dolls called Ashley 2s, uh, which have been programmed with the full brain scans of Ashley O. Then there's a lot of stuff with Ashley going into a coma and her manager and the people around her have far futuristic equipment that they are doing horrible things to her with um, so but it's, it's really more of a caper because for a lot of the episode Miley Cyrus's role is voicing this little doll and I loved that doll I was I was all in on that I loved it when she you know at first I thought what it was going to be is that like the little doll that has Ashley O's sort of personality was going to when her owner Rachel the teenage girl who's lonely was out of the room I thought that uh, the little doll was going to start like tormenting Jack her sister um um, and like start getting her to like or or you know start saying like I'm gonna murder you or whatever like very talky Tina you know I thought she was gonna become like this <laughs> evil doll but then it just turned out that uh, as Ashley's in a real coma her brain is uploaded to this doll and she she's desperately trying as she's trapped in this little doll she's trying to free herself from that and also free her real body and her real life from the control that she's been placed under by her manager and it shouldn't be a surprise that Miley Cyrus is really funny you know like she did a really great job uh you know voicing this little robot who's frustrated and angry and when she tries to leave and then she can't open the door (laughs) like like, so many really funny moments like that yeah i love that little doll too i would like one with the full ashley o personality that's like all angry all the time (laughs) yeah i mean it's funny because uh you kind of mentioned talking to our colleague james hibbert about this who's a total nut for black mirror and i think that um by the time this episode's posted, everyone should definitely go online and check out his updated ranking of all the Black yes. Mirror episodes. He also has some great conversations uh, with the makers of Black Mirror about all three new episodes. Um, but w- we parted ways a little bit because he he was, I, I think, a big fan of this episode, um, kind of just on the principle of it is really uh, you know fun to see these characters kind of get all together. There is, as I said, this whole kind of caper and even kind of a heist involved <laughs> towards the end. For me, Kristen, this was a little bit on the lesser side of of the Black Mirrors I've seen. I think just because certain aspects of its depiction of, oh, this is such a nerdy thing to say, certain aspects of its depiction of the music industry felt Mm -hmm. a little out of date to me. Right. Um, You know, like Ashley O is a much more sort of traditional notion of a pop star. That said, though, I mean, the the sort of master plan to turn her into a hologram and tour with the hologram all around the world like they're literally doing that to poor Whitney Houston so it's not that part is it out of date but I see what you're saying like this she's a little bubblegum pop is you know 10, 15 years uh, in the distance. I sort of wanted, uh, well, I mean, I I kind of wanted like the Miley Cyrus version of a pop star, maybe someone who's a little bit more complicated. But I'd be intrigued to know, Kristen, um, watching this one, which again, without spoiling too much, it has a way less unhappy ending than some black mirrors. (laughs) Um, Was there anything else about this that made you feel like, do you want to watch more? Are you kind of good with like turning your back on it after watching a like kind of more effusive version of black? 
Black Mirror. Yeah, no, I don't need to watch anymore because, like, <laughs> like if this is the happiest it gets, like, and it was definitely happy, and you know, I felt okay. I wasn't like in a funk afterwards. I just I don't need to risk it, and I probably built it up more in my mind uh, than in reality. I could probably I could probably like actually handle more episodes than I think I could. But like, why? 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 You know, you watch it. James watches it. I don't need to watch it for work. So why? I'm already stressed out enough by the world. I do so. think I, I I do think if I if I recommend just one sort of bleaker one for you to watch, like you might get a kick out of the one from season one called Fifteen Million Merits, uh, which is kind of retroactively known for being the introduction point for Daniel Kaluuya. He stars as as the main character, made many many years before he was in Get Out. Um, but like Fifteen Million Merits is like you know, Kristen, there are some black mirrors that feel like so close to real life that the science fiction stuff in it is just very disturbing. You're That's why like, I don't oh. like it. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So this episode is very different. It is like a full-fledged sort of dystopia, but it specifically is a dystopia where it's kind of like it's kind of like all society has become like uh, an American Idol style reality show. Yeah. And it's just a little bit more, I mean, as bleak as it is, it's kind of funnier and it feels a little bit more to me in the spirit of like, like, you know, it's, it's more of a kind of satire than a totally horrific depiction <laughs> of where our brains are going on, okay. on, 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 on modern technology. But on a scale of one to 10, 10 being like, so, you know, Chernobyl and one being, <laughs> you know, I don't know, um, you know, Teletubbies, where does it land on the, like, grim scale? Uh, well, I mean, I, I will say, given that every time I watch reality TV now, I think about 15 million merits, it might actually be above Chernobyl. So, so, maybe, <laughs> so, so maybe, you're, maybe you're better off. Maybe yeah. you're better off. But I, I am glad that, that uh, you did experience this one, because I, I do think of nothing else. It's a hoot and a holler of Yeah, an <laughs> and, you know, now I can say, okay, I've seen one episode, and I'm good. I'm good. Can I just tell you something crazy, though? Um, yes. Because I was talking, I was getting my hair cut yesterday, and my uh, hairdresser, who's great, he loves Black Mirror, and, um, you know, I asked him what he thought of Bandersnatch, and he he's like, oh, I liked it. And I said, well, did you do all the different endings? And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I was like, Tony... Tony, like you were supposed to like choose with the and he was like what and <sighs> and I was like yeah but you, you, didn't you and, and he's like oh we saw all that stuff but we just figured eh and we just watched it yeah <laughs> and then, and I told him that's why there are only three episodes this season because they spent so much time and <sighs> money doing Bandersnatch and, and I will say I mean you know like creator Ch Ch Charlie Brooker um, the last couple seasons of Black Mirror I, I do feel like he's doing a lot of experimentation I, yeah. I think he's taking a lot of that Netflix money and trying to do some different things with the narratives um, but yeah Bandersnatch the one you're talking about which came out uh, I believe at the end of last year uh, that is the choose your adventure one and it it did seem like an incredible amount of work for very little pay <laughs> so it, it 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 does not surprise me that yeah like you you, you sort of you sort of play slash watch it once and about halfway through you're like okay i think i i think i get it <laughs> and then you go read uh mystery at chimney rock yeah yeah Choose or your own adventure or, or 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 in my case you just flip over and play five hours of red dead redemption 2 which is also <laughs> probably not a good thing i've seen it enough Black Mirror to know that that's not a good thing, but uh, I am very intrigued to hear what everybody else out there 
thought about the uh, new batch of episodes. I don't think Black Mirror is going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, Kristen, it's time for us to take a break. And when we come back, oh my gosh, you, Kristen Baldwin, her, Pamela Adlon, the conversation, it's happening. I can't wait. So excited. <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. The beauty of the FX series Better Things isn't so much in what it's about, which is parenthood, womanhood, personhood, as it is in the detailed intensity of its characters' emotions. Creator, director, star Pamela Adlon finds the truth in moments that range from exhaustingly mundane to unavoidably life-changing, and she makes us laugh and cry in the process. Pamela, thanks so much for being here. I'm excited to talk to you about the season. I just watched the finale, so I'm all emotional. Yay! (laughs) It did its job. So I just want to start by saying this is always, you know, a really hard show to describe because when I tell people that I love it and I want them to watch it, saying it's about a single mom raising three daughters just doesn't feel like it does it justice. And and I've always wanted to ask you, how would you describe it? I'm in my writer's room right now uh, for season four. So basically, I'm still pregnant with season three. I'm due to deliver it tonight. I'm having Irish twin babies, television babies. So we're, we're in the writer's room yesterday. And I said to everybody, I said, what, let's talk about my show. And let's talk about Veep. Like Veep is a straight up comedy, right? Right. So what is my show? Because I literally like you can't. So if you're talking to your friends, and they would say to you, well, what is it? Is it a comedy? And you're like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> right. It's not a comedy. I always said that my show is like the incredible feeling show. That's what I get off on. I get off on 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 a real true feeling, something that's always ultimately positive, which is important to me. I don't like being having something that's extreme unless there's a, a, some light peeking through. I don't like nihilism without heart. That's what I like. I like a passionate feeling and I like I like things to be funny. I like things to be dirty. I'm always reminding myself and then when I'm on the set, if it's a scene with like the girls or something, I'm like, this isn't a Nickelodeon show. We're doing you know, real life. This is like LA kids. This is you've got to be raw. So I don't fucking know how you would describe my show but I know that it's not one of the things that I say to my network is please don't market my show to single moms because we got that on lock that's not where you need to market my show because 
the the responses I've gotten is there's no demographic for the world that this show creates for people. It 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 touches everybody. It does. And I mean, there's so many things about it that are relatable to me as a woman, a mom. But then who couldn't relate to the joy of buying a, a toilet that can flush golf balls without getting clogged? I finally got myself a toilet that I haven't had to plunge since I got it a year ago. You know, I used to have to plunge my toilet three to five times a week. I'm not fucking kidding you. That was from your real life that you got this toilet? Yeah, well, I didn't. I actually, I didn't get a prison toilet, but. <laughs> <laughs> but it was pretty That's awesome. That's a fantasy. <laughs> right, right. I love that your show has always sort of offered a very clear-eyed but affectionate sort of portrayal of what it means to be a working actor. And this season, the storyline about Sam's concerns on the set of her big-budget movie Monsters in the Moonlight is an example of that. Can you tell me about how that story came about? I wanted to show, and I'm uh, I in a position where I've been able to create a person who is exactly what you said she's a working class actor so she's not a star she's not whatever she just she takes the work as she gets it and I've been working for so many years and I've seen so many things that you know it it I had an opportunity to show what it's like on a set because that's the world that Sam lives in she doesn't work in a store. She doesn't work, you know, in a salon or whatever, because it happens everywhere. But this is her world. And, you know, there's just so much blatant abuse of power and dickishness that goes on all the time. So this was great opportunity for me to show that and uh, to and my my kind of response uh, or my adding to the hashtag me too conversation. It's interesting because it felt very relatable. You know, I'm not an actress or anything. It feels like a very female response to be like, well, there's this problem and nobody's speaking up about it. I'm just going to step up and do it because that's what women do. Absolutely. And the fun part was adding this little snag, which is this, the kind of the gold that I always try to uncover in the stories, which was the the evil scripty the script supervisor girl so i called her evil scripty in the in the in the script and it was i also my term for her was a bros before hoes ho because those fucking women who are like i just i i have all guy friends like i mean i just relate to guys and whatever and they, and that other women are allergic to them mm mm this season, too, the show really celebrates, it always has, but especially this season, it celebrates art and artists, you know, sort of in all forms, like I, the storylines about Max's photography and the poetry slam and the recital in the finale. Was that something you intentionally wanted to explore more this season? I like to go uh, in the direction of things that inspire me. These are all my aesthetic. I'm inspired by a poetry slam, particularly one for youth. And I think, God, that's so cool. Like, I, I love this so much. You think that everybody in the world knows about it. They don't. So I can take something that I love and then 
throw a storyline into it while also showcasing something that's very cool that people may not know about. The casting this season, I mean, it's always so good, but there were so many moments this season where I was just like, so excited to see people that just popped up. First, there was, I think it's all in episode three, where we get these TV legends, Mary Jo Catlett, Bernie Coppell, Glenn Turman, Nicholas Coster, in that first scene. And as a person who loves TV and grew up on TV, I, I was so thrilled to see that. Uh, how did that come together? I wanted to have a scene, we called it the Altacoppers. So <laughs> we... I, I wanted to show Murray's cronies, my dad's cronies, and Sam is trying to document this experience with them. And it's something, it's a fantasy that I've had for a long time because I lost my father uh, quite a long time ago. And I'm, I, I sit there and I go, boy, this is a missed opportunity. I should fly to every state where my dad's old cronies are and sit down and record them talking about my father. So it was born from that. And then casting them, being able to unearth Bernie Capel and find out that he speaks Yiddish, it was like unbelievably cool. And Mary Jo Catlett and Nicholas Coster and Glenn Turman, I got to tell you, that was an epic day. And it's one of the, it's, it's one of the drawbacks of doing my show because I want to finish my days in 12 hours at the most. And so that was the first half of a day, and we could have stayed there forever. I mean, Nicholas and Glenn were in the you know inner city arts theater 50 years ago. They did a play together, and they hadn't seen each other since, and it was just – it was – awesome. It was as awesome as you can even imagine, just sitting at that table with them. They're getting off on each other, and they are legends. And for the people who don't know them, it's just, it's like a really nice scene. And the people who do know them, it's extra, you know, TV nerd gold. Absolutely. That's exactly what it was, TV nerd gold. And then in the same episode, I believe, Freaking Sharon Stone shows up as Jeff's girlfriend. I met her at the Golden Globes uh, 2018. I don't even remember. It was like the one before the last one. And she just she just threw so much love and support and affection my way. And she was like, I think you're fucking great. And I whatever. And I just I thought where can I put her? And um, this was actually the, the perfect place. And it's, it's not a giant role. It's, it's the, it was the perfect spot for her. She and Greg Cromer had incredible chemistry and she just fit right in. You know what I mean? And it's, it's so fun to be able to take like this magical unicorn who is Sharon Stone and stick her in this world. And, and she blossoms in, in a way that you've never seen her do it. You know, it's like Matthew. Uh, Matthew, the same. Adorable. I was going to ask you, I mean, he's so great. And he was another moment where I gasped, you know, like, oh, it's Matthew Broderick. And then it is totally different, but it completely works. Did you know him before or how did that happen? I've known him since I was 15 years old. 
I was with the original company of Brighton Beach Memoirs as an understudy. So I literally watched this guy become a star because we started in L.A. and then we went to San Francisco and then we opened on Broadway in New York City. And I watched this kid become a massive superstar. Through the years, we've done... um, play readings and different kinds of things together. And the episode nine, which uh, was the one where I go and I did the play reading, that was based on a play reading that I did with Matthew at the roundabout a year ago. I wanted Matthew to be in that episode playing the Mark Feuerstein part. But then the, the, this came up and we started writing this character, the therapist, and I thought, oh, that's Matthew. And that's how all of that happened. That's amazing. And, and you know, in that play reading episode, too, is another example of such fun casting. You know, I was so excited to see John John Briones, who was so good in Versace. And I just, you know, can't wait for him to become an even bigger star. And I wanted to talk about also the, I believe it's episode 10, Sam's conversation with her friends about what it's like being a a middle-aged woman in our society and and like you're basically invisible. And uh, and and that is a conversation that is very relatable, but you never see that really women talking about that in on TV or in film. Like, how did that story come about? All you do is look to yourself, you know, and so these are feelings that I have in the world. And you just, I mean, it's, it's a noticeable thing. And it's the conversation that we have in that episode that I just realized, oh my God, I like literally am not the thing I used to be anymore. It's Mm -hmm. just like, you know, it's just your expiration date. It goes ding. And your, you know, your jawline just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And, you know, something, you know, your neck got a little bit too funky. And (laughs) people don't look at you the way they used to look at you anymore. And, you know, it's just a different feeling, feeling a, a little bit like, And especially, you know, when you have uh, kids and particularly daughters, you know, I have three amazing, like gorgeous daughters and I am so irrelevant now. I like the idea of um, being being a superpower, like you can just go about your business (laughs) and no one bothers you. Exactly. Exactly. So, as you said, Better Things has been renewed for season four, which is great. Can you tell us, tease any themes you're going to explore next season or any anything that you uh, can preview? I don't think so, <laughs> because everything's forming now. And so, listen, I don't even explain things even when the show airs that are that have uh, questions. So, I I, I wouldn't want to tease you now. And one of the things we always uh, ask people when they come on our show is like what the first show is that you remember loving? Probably The Electric Company. Oh, I love that too. And Zoom and Sesame Street. And then and then the Bugs Bunny cartoons, all cartoons. I mean, that's where I learned how to do voices. And you know, it's hard to find the Looney Tunes now. I would like to show them to my son. I know, it's cuz all this fucking content is pushing all the classics away. What have you been watching recently or what's the last thing that you watched recently that you liked? 
I thought Ozark was really fucking banging. Have you finished uh, all of those seasons, or are you still in the middle of it? Uh, yeah, I totally I devoured them. I thought they were great. I love TV, but it, it, it's hard for me to stay awake at the end of the night. You know, I'm a, I'm been watching Game of Thrones, so I feel like I'm like so excited that I'm in that, and that I have something to discuss with people so it's like being in a fake book club (laughs) and I love people who love it and I love people who hate it I love getting everybody's opinion about it and um, I'm watching Fosse Verdon too which I love and I'm pissed off that I'm not a producer on it. Well I really appreciate you taking the time I know you're in the middle of uh, gestating uh, next season's baby Um, so thank you thank you for uh, taking the time and congrats on the season and I look forward to more from you thank you so much I really appreciate the support that'll do it for this week's episode of best of shows if you like what you hear give us a rating and subscribe at apple podcasts stitcher google play radio.com or wherever you get your podcasts if you don't like it or just want to talk TV, tweet at us. I'm at Kristen G. Baldwin, and my partner in crime is at Darren Franich. Let us know what you think. Until next week, I should have a catchphrase, but I don't. So bye. <laughs>